0: Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. This is the place to learn how to get through your worst rock bottom and start to embrace adversity. I'm your host, Petra Belzebor. I'm a therapist and a life coach, but my biggest learning is from my own rock bottom. My story includes being raised in a cult, dealing with depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and alcoholism. But along the way, I've learned to turn my entire life around to one of success, joy, and fulfillment. So in this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life who've done the same. I'll be teasing out the skills and tools necessary as well as using my own experience to teach you how to turn your adversity into your biggest advantage. Welcome everyone to the Adversity uh, to Advantage podcast. Today we've got Anne Betts who is all the way across the pond. Did you say New Mexico? I am in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Santa Fe, New Mexico. I love it when we get um, people from sort of overseas. And, and Anne is an expert on the neuroscience of human consciousness and coaching, which is, a, I mean, just an amazing one-liner. We're, we're so privileged <laughs> to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So fill, fill uh, in the blanks for us. Yeah. What, what are you passionate about at the moment? What do you do? Oh my goodness!
1: Well, I'm what I've been passionate about. I think since I was about 17 years old and trying to figure out what the meaning of life was, is is oh, that, human. That consci- small question. Yeah, that small question that you know will is a question you can live with the rest of your life. Uh, at least for me, that's you know that is the question. What is what is this for? Um, and so I've been fascinated by meaning by. Um, by consciousness, by awareness, um, and that's where this path for me all started. Was look was being aware that people are operating in the world at different levels of consciousness is certainly what what I have seen, and um, that's a whole big juicy topic in and of itself, but just the, the map of kind of how this went was that my business and I, my business partner and I really got into working with that. And then about 15, 16 years ago, this idea of, you know, why do people do what they do? They do what they do because they're at different levels of awareness and whatever they're doing and however they're acting and responding is completely in accord with whatever level of awareness they're at. And then about seven years ago or so, I started seeing that this wasn't just a sort of a spiritual idea, an energetic idea. This actually may have had different correlates in the brain. And I am not a scientist. I'm a poet. I was an actress. I don't come this from this like uh, you know hardcore science place but i made myself learn it because i wanted to know so badly you know was this just this kind of spiritual idea or could you actually prove it so that's been what the last 8 years or so 7 or 8 years have been about is saying ah what happens in the brain and the body and in our ability to collect to connect with the collective consciousness at these different levels of awareness and then you know for this topic what happens in terms of adversity and resilience because it's really different at different levels of consciousness
0: yeah, how do some people cope with seemingly much bigger adversity uh, and they cope in a much different way or a much better way, so to speak, or they gather learning from it as opposed to someone who may on the outside have, may have seemed to have less adversity and it sort of floors them completely. It's a fascinating topic.
1: Yeah, I'm sure you've seen that in all of your work in interviewing people and talking to people that, you know, some things that you just think would would completely kill some people are actually inspiring to others.
0: Completely. And and what I find fascinating about these interviews is everyone has a story uh, mm. and, and you may not notice that from the outside or who they've become and then you and you delve into their history and what's made them who they are and it's just a fascinating journey and it's the people that have you know, mapped out some, some meaning and given some meaning to their past that seemed to, to thrive.
1: Yes, I would totally, I, yeah, I would absolutely agree. One of my teachers, a wonderful man named Dan Siegel talks about, um, helping people create a story they can live with.
0: So profound. Isn't it, yeah. And one where they uh, have some sense of control or power, it, it seems yes. to be a sort of a very useful way of moving forward yeah beautiful, absolutely. I agree with that. Um, I think yeah. we, we could get into sort of the theory of this like um, for hours. Um, okay, this is fascinating. um give us tell us a little bit about you, Anne. so so go back give us a bit of context to what it was like growing up. I mean do you, do you think your your parents or the education system sort of prepared you for the real world or or the level of consciousness that you're at now?
1: oh my goodness, you know, yes and no, (laughs) you know, I I don't know. Um, So sort of brief, brief background. Um, I was raised by parents who um, were just, I was born in 1964. And so my father was a psychology professor. So we're looking at sort of just edging into, you know, the 60s in the US, but he was already married with little kids, but teaching psychology. And so I was raised for most of my life. Life with my parents in an open marriage. We lived in a, a, in a sort of modified commune for a while. There, were, there was a lot of, you know, part of what I learned kind of in the, in the positive was we're not constrained by the rules. And I think that's deeply embedded in my soul, that we don't have to follow society's rules. Um, Nobody's requiring that. Uh, So that's, I think, something that has helped me be very, very, very resilient. Because if you're stuck by society's rules about everything, um, or anybody's rules, or any system's rules, then when that doesn't work, what do you do? But when you're raised in a way which is saying we're sort of living outside of that, um, then there's
0: kind of infinite possibility. So I think that was a really helpful thing that I was raised with. I I imagine Uh, you have an appreciation for it now in some way and what it's given me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, More appreciation
1: for it at this stage of life because there was, you know, some of what didn't prepare me as much was – consistent adult attention, consistent, um, you know, parenting. Uh, there was a lot that, uh, the, the kids kind of had to, we sort of had to figure out for ourselves, particularly my brother and me. Um, as the younger ones. And so, you know, and some of what I now know about just how we manage in life, you know, that's so critical for kids to have um, adults who are kind of helping them learn what it is to be resilient and learn, you know, watch and learn how to, how to recover From stress and things like that. And when the parents are kind of doing their own thing, maybe you can relate to this. I can. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's sort of like you're, you know, this feeling of like, I'm on my own. And I think in my early 20s, the other thing that happened to me that was really, really profound in my life is I have a condition called alopecia. And that is basically the body becomes allergic to your hair. And so when I'm about 16, 17, um, my body starts rejecting my hair and I go bald. Wow. with so and you can imagine I'm in the middle of this we weren't not living in the commune at the time but my parents were still engaged in an open marriage doing their own thing um, and I'm going through a pretty severe psychological crisis of um, having been an actress and being an ingenue kind of actress and being you know valued for being pretty sure. and losing my hair and my whole identity of you know who the hell am I? Um, without that identity of cute and pretty and, and all. And that was my, where I thought I was going in life was, you know, going to go study um, at some famous acting school and, and be that. So that was probably the, one of the, the biggest adversities age 17. OMG, what now? was uh and and my
0: parents kind of checked out doing their own you know of course I have a few questions I have to <laughs> I'm to you go <laughs> I'm just like, I've got my curiosity is like sparking in all different directions um my first question is were you like now you're talking about your parents being in an open relationship were they open with you about what that meant or or like reassuring you that they were together but that these were the the, the sort of constraints within an open like as a child did you understand what that meant or what war was it just a bit chaotic that sometimes you saw mum with somebody and sometimes you saw dad with somebody else and what was that like
1: Yeah, it was kind of in the middle. It was sort of in the middle of that. I mean, it wasn't hidden and, you know, and they talked with us about it, but I don't think we had the same, you know, remember this would have been like 19, I was eight years old. So the seventies, early seventies. And I don't think we had the same understanding of sort of the complexities, the polyamory and all of that. um, Then as we maybe have more thought about it now and what it means to the children, they were just sort of doing it, figuring it was all going to be okay so it wasn't hidden it wasn't shameful or secret so that was really positive but there wasn't a lot of um I think reassurance of the kids or or even understanding that it might be kind of strange for us um they might say differently but that was sort of my impression at the time we just kind of went along um and they weren't very they weren't very you know they ended up getting my parents ended up getting divorced as did the couple is it was mainly with another couple um as did the other couple. My father is now married to that woman very very happily, very monogamously for like forty years really? you No, know, totally in love and they're like my they're like my go to example of a
0: very positive romantic relationship um How so. Amazing. Th- I know, pretty amazing. But so so I'm just acknowledging, like, you know, the, the confusion that that may have caused a child, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in the first place. And then moving on to, you know, your 16, 17-year-old self sort of losing your hair, I mean what I identify with is when you have an alternative kind of background and then you become an adolescent, all you fucking want to do is fit in or belong mm. with some sort mm. of group. And, you, and mm. you feel, you may feel like an outsider. Or you, you sort of had your looks maybe to go on in order to allow you to fit in. So already that transition is huge. And then on top of that, you've got the loss of your hair and, and sort of understand. Tell us a little bit more about that time.
1: Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I think just the, you know, I don't know that I wanted to be normal, but I sure wanted to have a, you know, like every adolescent, that's the big question is where is my place in the world? What is my value? And, you know, for me, my, my value was my, was I think my looks and my whatever talent I had as an actress. Um, so it felt like that got take, it it felt very, very victimy, felt very much like that taken from me. Um, uh, I had no real role models for how to deal with this or work with this. Um, or there wasn't any kind of body positive body, different movement at the time. It really was like you were either, you know, looked this way or you were out. And I remember feeling like at the time, like it was the low, it was really was the lowest point in my life. Um, I remember feeling like the world was a Pepsi Cola commercial and I was not part of it. Mm. there was no room for anybody bald you never saw that there were no role models so therefore i was not part of basic humanity
0: what a stark, and, stark image of you know emotionally yes. what you you might have must have been going through how did you cope like some people sort of pull back and isolate and go in on themselves some people maybe sort of act out or use substances or like what what showed up for you just when you were in that state of maybe rock bottom
1: yeah I think I I think for me I I I gained some weight not you know a terrible amount but you know I, I definitely ate more um what ended up happening for me is really interesting um was that I you know, when I look back on this period, it wasn't a very long period. And the sort of the, the blessing was that I ended up meeting this group of adults who were probably, you know, maybe eight to 10 years older than I was at the time, 17. know, they're in their mid twenties, mid to late twenties. They were, this is very interesting. They were very, very involved in what was at the time, the EST training and became the landmark forum and is still around. And they basically had this personal growth attitude about life. They loved me. They thought that I was beautiful and wonderful. And I hung out with them a lot. And they got me to go to this thing. I don't even know where I got the money or if I got a scholarship or what it was. And what I got in this weekend, and and I'm not a, a fashionado of that. That's all sort of a part of my my story. It had its value and it had its limitations. So I'm not you know, not promoting that.
0: Yeah, sure. For
1: Um, for sure. sure. I mean, it, it was, it was very helpful at the time and I think it has some value to it, but I'm not like, you know, I wouldn't call myself part of that at all. Yeah. But what I got when I did this weekend was that this feeling that I had, that I was not part of things that I started seeing
0: that it, that it, that I wasn't so special in feeling that way. Right. (laughs) It was like, what which which you, is both great and like disappointing in a way. Well, it's just,
1: it was it was a huge fucking relief at the time. Right, okay, <laughs> <was> like really, <laughs> like oh my god, other people for whatever reason feel like they don't belong. Therefore, maybe you know, maybe it's not so. Maybe it actually isn't that I don't belong. I mean, I think that was the start of that processing. And I was about 17 or 18 at the time, maybe 18. Um, this is right before I went to college and that sort of awareness that this wasn't personal, Mm. that this was kind of a human struggle. Yeah. Part of the human condition. Yeah, exactly. And therefore I think what it gave me, I mean, I was not this conscious about it, you know, 18 going, ah, don't have any hair. Um, but I think what it gave me was this feeling of, like, therefore, I can choose.
0: What can you choose?
1: I can choose to be part of things.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: It's not a fait accompli. It's not a, you know, it's not that somebody stole my humanity from me. Um, this It's just a choice to be part of it all. And it and the, the fact that I look different doesn't mean that I'm not as valuable as everyone else. And that was really, really critical. And I think, you know, from then on, I, I, you know, I did things like I, I was, you know, it's really interesting how this thing that happened to me that I did not cause in any way, really created a feeling of shame. Right. Which, you know, I'm sure you've heard from (laughs) felt or heard, and you know, all
0: of the above. Yeah, Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And I'm thinking, but, but it's not like I did this. Um, and so what I did at that time is I, I started making myself tell people because it was the only way that I could figure out kind of to deal with the shame. And again, it wasn't even that conscious, but I knew I felt really bad about it and ashamed. And so, you
0: know, did you see other people doing that? Like did you have some role models within that, the the 20 something sort of group or collective um, where not maybe about that issue, but sort of an openness and an honesty that you sort of learned from?
1: I think you're right. I think there, there was a huge, huge value on being authentic yeah Um, on on you know yeah being real about who you were and so I think that's right it wasn't just my own idea it was it was watching this role model role modeling and then also feeling the relief when I could just say you know oh you know your hair looks pretty I'm like yeah it's a wig
0: okay so you would wear wigs at at that age it's wearing wigs
1: at that time which I have done
0: and then there are times that I have not done that and I do it now um But rather than sort of going, yes, thank you, my hair is beautiful, uh, you know, and and then having the worry or the fear that they could find out, you know, and and the shame around that.
1: Right. Just making myself, you know, gulp and say it. But I think you're right. I think it was the... The the ethic, and you know one of the interesting things that I have learned um, in in my studies of neuroscience is, you know what we are learning at that point in our life gets really wired. That's what our brain is doing. It's wiring in the adult brain, you know, in that adolescent, those adolescent years up to about mid twenties, and so I think about these lessons that I learned that I took on as really critical, like you you don't lie about yourself you show up as who you are you honor your word and that was very much the ethic of the you know this the s training and you know i took it on in a way that became very much part of my dna and i think part of that was my age
0: but so profound at 17 18 to be to be getting these sorts of realizations right and and seeing that level of role modeling
1: Yeah, and to be around people who, you know, whether they were able to always carry through on this or not, certainly the ethic was to be a good person and to be an honest person. And I am, you know, hugely grateful for that because there are, I came away with, I think, some really positive Things out of doing that at that age in my life. It also was a little
0: culty. It also was a little, you know, sounds like say like you know, so that is good. Yeah, no, I'm I'm agreeing. Uh, yeah. my, my my cult radar is pretty uh, high yeah. <laughs> high level. <Totally.
1: laughs> you know, anybody who wasn't part of it kind of wasn't as enlightened. There and, you you go. Know,
0: yeah,
1: your money and get more people to come and you yeah. know all there was definitely all of that and it definitely and there's a lot of people that have analyzed you know and in it it has changed in particular the early the early days and what you were allowed to do and what you weren't allowed to do and you know things like that but it meets some of the criteria of cults Absolutely. for sure 100%
0: <laughs> um, anyway um but but what you're saying is you like the the funny thing is if i tell people i was raised in a cult immediately their eyes sort of go to the most horrific end of the spectrum of something that they can fathom, right, that they've sensationally read or, or heard or seen. Um, and I sometimes have to go, actually, I had a pretty good childhood, you know, um, wow. that I had five siblings, I was always around other kids, I was traveling to amazing countries and places, and when you're in the bubble of it, there's a lot of gray area. There's, there's happy... You know, like, life yeah. isn't linear. There's paradoxes. Um, the, the challenges, in a similar way that you're describing, are when I became a teenager and realized how different I was and realized that there was no blueprint for living outside of this set of sort of rules. Um, and also, the the hmm, the knock on effect of sort of that free love environment with our parents, which sounds similar to you know it just maybe magnified, you know the open relationship element and the confusion around that, and the impact on myself as a woman, my sexuality, intimacy, relationships. Like I feel like there was a thread from from, from that for me and for many of us who grew up in that way. And I wonder if there was anything that sort of impacted you as far as um intimacy and connection based on that childhood. I don't know.
1: yeah, you know it's a it's for sure um, and it's, as you say, very paradoxical and very layered, and um you know there's some there's some things about um, you know that love isn't limited that are really positive. And yet at the time, you know, the other, I think, impact particularly on me as a young woman is because I didn't see sort of any kind of boundaries modeled or very many boundaries modeled. Um, it, I didn't know what boundaries were
0: appropriate. Yeah. Um, yeah. so I didn't have
1: very many boundaries at all. Yeah.
0: yeah. And, and like you said, that like gives you a whole bunch of freedom and like break the rules and do business in your own way, and you can appreciate that. But when you're forming your own identity, it's if you don't have boundaries, you're open to to being hurt and to yeah. being taken advantage of, and some and, of that sort of thing.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and and being, I think, I think manipulated, and you know, it's it's interesting. I saw this really interesting thing um, after the. The guy that just got defeated in Alabama and the whole 14-year-old girl is shit. And, you know, being a, you know, 14, 15-year-old girl who was raised in a somewhat sexualized environment without a lot of boundaries. I mean, I would have my boyfriends over because I just figured nobody's going to say anything. You know, and this, we weren't even in the commune anymore. Um, So you know, one of the things that I saw is there was sort of a post, like not really, but kind of like from 14 year old girls and basically saying, you know, yeah, we're sexual. Yeah. We've got lots of stuff going on. This is why we need you to be ethical because you know, there, and I relate to that. I relate to that kind of early sexuality because it was all kind of around me. I mean, it wasn't crazy, but it was also just, you know, in a way that I think a lot of, you know, more typical families, it's not as, it's not as prevalent, you know, not. It's
0: it's the implicit messages of of what you see or don't see, or the the lack of boundaries in other areas as well that can then, you know, it it normalizes that sexuality, which can be absolutely healthy, but it doesn't necessarily put the structures in place and protect a young woman from sort of uh, predators or, or, you know, other types of toxic situations that can show up.
1: Right yeah exactly well well said so
0: (laughs) said from the heart (laughs) yes Um, what a journey (laughs) yeah no Um, kidding and where were your parents like um as far as you you know you're you you kind of getting involved with this uh group whatever you might refer to them as and and your hair loss and um do you feel like you got support uh emotionally or practically from from your parents or i don't know if you have siblings or anyone (laughs) around you at that time you know, um, I think my father was, was a psychology
1: professor, course, and he was very—he was really concerned that I was kind of in a cult um, uh, to some degree. I was living in New York at the time. They were in Minnesota, so I wasn't really, you know, right there with them. Um, you know, I, I, they were pretty hands-off as parents, and then you come to a point where if you have hands-off parents, you know, it's, it's hard to restructure that. Yeah, relationship. Yeah. And I have to say what's really interesting, my dad and I have actually talked a lot about it. We're we're my mother has, has died, but my dad and I are really close. And I've you know I've been real straight with him about a fair 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 number of these things. And you know, one of the things that I've seen with my father was um, he taught group process and you know what were called helping skills at the time. A lot of it was the early precursors to coaching. He relates a lot to what I say about coaching and sometimes he's like, oh yeah, we were doing that back in the Seventies. Sure. <laughs> All right, Dad. Doesn't matter, you know. Fine. You were doing it before me. No, no problem. Um, but he really had this view, this very which I now know comes originally from Carl Rogers. I think that people are naturally creative and resourceful. Yeah. And I think that that was part of his parenting was that we were naturally creative and resourceful, and we would figure it out. And you know, I could have used a little more. Like, okay, yes, but you know, the way that I look at this with my son, who's 21 is that is how I have raised him. How with a bit, there's an, and
0: there for me and I'm one of his resources, right? If he needs you, he can, he can call on you. Yep. You can offer the guidance.
1: Yep. And I'm watching for, does he need me?
0: Yep. And, and that I think, was different
1: that, yeah, I think that was the piece, but, you know, but I, I actually have a lot of gratitude for having been raised that way with a lot of space and freedom to, you know, try things and, and not a lot of like judgment or, you know, try to force me into something that I wasn't. Um, I think there was a lot of value to that. I just think it
0: went a little, it, it over calibrated a bit. Well it certainly builds resilience, doesn't it? Yes. If you've got yes. to fail constantly and figure it out and learn from your own experience, you know, all of that is the the amazing building blocks for resilience. Yes. For oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> too much resilience, too much yeah. <laughs> too too much challenge. Um Interesting. So, so where has this, how has some of this impacted you, and you're a parent as well, and so am I, and, and that can be an interesting kind of triggering hotbed, both <laughs> relationships and parenting, triggering hotbed of anything that you haven't sort of figured out, or, or maybe the hurt and, and challenges that we faced when we were younger, it's suddenly for me going oh, what is the structure that I want to give my kids? Yeah. What is actually good? And it's really um, inspired a lot of my education as a therapist and a coach. And, uh, you know, I did a, a master's degree in sort of attachment to understand that okay. early, early impact um, that, that uh, you know, that we take with us. Uh, yes. And very interesting that I'm five siblings and we've all kind of moved on from that history in slightly different ways, you know very interesting because it's like well we essentially grew up in the same environment so so we're thinking hey how is resilience sort of built and I, I would say we're all resilient but we all have a different view of of our past and of the world that we live in uh, and how we cope on a daily basis and what we think we're capable of um and it's just in- interesting to see do you is it, do you just have one son
1: I I have one son and only one and one brother and then two half Siblings, and you're absolutely right. It's like everybody has a different. Perspective. Everybody, grew up, everybody grew up in a different world. In many, in Isn't many ways, it's, it's like a Venn diagram. There's some overlaps, and then there's a, you know, the way that my brother perceives my dad is or has is is, is very different, and and probably is different. He's probably was they were different there. Um, mother was different with my brother than she was with me. Um, so there are different worlds. I think the, you know, I'm fascinated. I don't know a ton about it, just a layman's um, understanding of woman's understanding of attachment, but I'm fascinated by, you know, the impact that that has on brain structure and, you know, kind of where that, sends us where we when there's insecure attachment and literally in the in the lack of resilience in the brain the lack of ability to recover because you haven't seen it you haven't experienced it at that early you know early times um
0: Anyway, uh, that was a little theoretical. What was the question? <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea what the question was. Um, but the, there's something about the, the, I was asking a little bit about your structure and if you had one son and, and how we all experience things uh, sort of differently from each other. So trying to understand this uh, resilience element. And something about the, attach, uh, the attachment is, you know, we talk about a secure attachment is where you have a base so that you've got that yeah. base, you know, you can go out, take some risks, but you've got the kind of watchful eye that you describe about with you and your son, um, so that if they need a resource, they know that they've got that secure base that they can sort of go back to, fill up, get the resource, and then go out into the world, you know, sort of to take their next next risk or try things out. Oh
1: God, that's so beautifully, beautifully, dis- beautifully described. And I think about, you know, the... Just the the ability to also you know self soothe, mm. you know calm yourself down when when something is really distressing and you're, you've gotten a bit of an amygdala hijack and the you know all of the chemicals that are coursing through the body have kind of taken over and you know for me that's a huge part of of my resiliency as well is to be aware you know I'm not at my best at that time that. I'm you know, going to say something or do something or freak out or worry about something that isn't really real. And for me, I think that's a huge, that's been more um, something I've learned uh, through a lot, a lot of personal growth um, over the last, you know, since I was 17, like what what's happening here. And now I have a better understanding of what literally what's happening in the brain. But this idea of, um, you know, not acting out, um, finding a place to come to center before I act. And I think that's a, that's a lifetime journey. I don't think I'm, you know, of perfect at it um but
0: it's a real commitment that i have because to me that is a high level of resiliency does that make sense completely Uh, because it's such a primal response as you describe uh, you sort of in the brain it's it's that that survival fight flight freeze sort of thing that that goes on and it is the time that we say things that we may uh regret later um but but also it's learning the the self-awareness that you described so beautifully um of recognizing when those things are happening just maybe delaying the actual action that you might do and it it is it's a real practice to figure some of that stuff out sometimes it's after right that you go oh hey that's what was going on for me
1: Yeah, exactly. That's why I felt like that. And, and, and I think about this whole beautiful idea of neuroplasticity of the brain being able to change itself and, and with practice and with attention, I think this is what we do as coaches and ideally, you know, any kind of, um, human development professional is we're helping people practice this, re-patterning of more positive behaviors so that they lock it, they've got it. And I think about one of the things I did with my son and it was so, this is going to sound so great, but it, I want to tee this up by saying it was vastly imperfect.
0: Right, <laughs> I like that you said that.
1: <laughs> I realized we were in this dynamic when he was so. Uh, I got divorced when uh, from his dad when he was thirteen. Great time to get divorced, you know. I'm perimenopausal. He's like you know an adolescent. Mm. we 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 were living in Costa Rica, you know, on a tropical paradise. We moved back to Minnesota, so all of this kind of perfect storm. And he was a real. Creep, you know, like he just was not a, but well, I shouldn't say it that way. He wasn't a creep. He just was, you know, he would go adolescent on me and be irrational and, um, you know, he would get into whatever, for whatever reason, his amygdala hijack. And that would of course trigger me. And he's a fighter. So he would like follow me around the house, trying to get me to engage. Mm. And I'm more of a fleer. Oh, <laughs> so right. I was like, that was hilarious. You could have, you know, it would have been a very funny video watching him, like watching me like close doors and him open, you know, trying to get <laughs> me to engage in this completely irrational thing. So at at one point I was, eight, uh, because I was studying the brain at the time and I was like, aha, huh That's what's going on. So I sat him down when we were both calm and I told, and I basically took responsibility because I, that was the only thing that's going to work. And I said, look, sometimes when you want to talk to me, I get triggered and I go into this. I just want to get away responses, flee response. And so here's what I'd like. Um, I want to, I want you to give me time to calm down of course Petra what I'm thinking is I want you to calm down <laughs> of course you're, you're
0: thinking I want some peace we can't keep I living like this peace. right
1: <laughs> and I want you to you know get your brain to come back online but you know that wasn't gonna work so I just said I want to calm down so just give me like 10 minutes just give me a time to a chance, ch- chance to catch my breath and then I promise I will talk with you about it and it was very imperfect. It wasn't like he immediately said, "Oh, of course, Mom," and that makes total he, sense. <laughs> it makes sense I mean he sort of said, "Yeah, that makes sense, but then he would get triggered, but I would remind him, and you know it it diminished, and I think by the time he was about a senior in high school, we were pretty good at it, and mm. we were pretty good at not getting into this. Conversation, both from our amygdalas, which was just going to create more, you know, pushing away from each other.
0: And, and I so, love how you said, you know, you explained what it was that you needed at that time. Whatever your motivation was, um, did did he ever get to a point where he said, "Well, this is what I need during that time"? I, yeah, what he
1: said at the time was, "I just want," you know, like he didn't say it exactly like this, but what I got to was the reason he was chasing me around was that he was afraid I wouldn't address whatever he wanted me to right. address. And so he needed to, so he needed to know that I would address it. And that was my promise to him. Just let me, I absolutely will address it. Of course, by the time
0: that everybody calmed down, there was usually very little to address. Of course, but he's, he's communicating that he needs closure in that way. And you need yeah. space in order to... And, and I just want to highlight that, yes, this is a sort of mother-son dynamic, but this is so transferable to every bloody relationship, right? Uh, yeah. where, where we just go into our, our patterns that are triggered from our past and just kind of holding the hope that we can re-educate, re-engineer, whatever the word might be, our, our brain in, into how, the, how we deal with these conflicts.
1: Absolutely. And I think about, you know, the... Um, I've had students say, say to me, uh, you know, well, I, you know, I went to talk to my husband or whatever. And, you know, and I explained all of this and he just was like, he wasn't listening to me. <laughs> he wasn't listening to you. You know, you cannot talk into an amygdala hijack. You cannot be rational into an amygdala hijack. And pretty soon you're just going to have one yourself. I mean, you've got to get, you've got to get that part of the brain to calm down.
0: And so Maybe- what, yeah, what you said was the key point was you chose a time when you were both calm to even have this conversation
1: Um, yeah absolutely i don't i can't tell his amygdala to do that because the amygdala is just looking to you know fight or free flee protect us keep us safe you know whatever our perception is at the time and and it's not capable of you know long-term planning or building relationships or having empathy so shit (laughs) i know so (laughs) you've got to yeah, absolutely transferable. And I got to tell you that alone, I think really made adolescence a lot easier for both of us.
0: Yeah. I've, I, just to remind you, I've got a 14 year old, so <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in it. Uh, yes. I mean, I do think my, my decade of learning about attachment, learning about communication, yeah. like my kids have been my, my prime Guinea pigs <laughs> to be like, how can we communicate differently? Um, but I don't know that we're in the thick of it yet. And I think I'm going to have a lot more uh, intensity to come with my daughter just because of the way their personalities are. And she's 11 at the moment. Um, yeah.
1: You know, the other thing, and I, I am absolutely convinced you know this already, but it was such an aha for me. I d- took a, took a, so did some work with gestalt therapy in the middle of Noah's adolescence. And it, it, I, was, I was unaware that the reason he was being so much more difficult with me than anyone else was that he did feel really safe with me.
0: Yeah, that's really and, profound.
1: You know, I I was like, god, we have the best relationship. I am so much more patient with him. I mean, not, you know, over-calibrating, I didn't think, but that, you know, but he would just like let loose on me. And that was what this gestalt therapist who was was sort of um, teaching a group of us as coaches how to use this more in our coaching was basically saying, oh, yeah, you don't get it. That's what kids do
0: when they feel safe. And to be fair, that's what we do in relationship if we feel safe. And it seems like a weird trajectory, but we, we go to work, we get all stressed and we keep our professional hat on and then we go home and we absolutely lose it with the person or the people closest to us because we're safe enough to act out all the frustrations and stresses. But it's when we miss out on sort of debriefing that in a way uh, and explaining that when we're out of that, um, that primal sort of state uh, that's when the, the problems are not feeling appreciated, that sort of thing within relationship. I'm recently divorced too. I think we need to just go for a drink, me and you.
1: For sure. And I think this is, it is a really interesting thing because I think you're right. We do that as in relationship, we kind of let loose. And then what happens is the, you know, one of the partner who's being let loose a lot on, if it's, if it's more one than the other goes, I'm not going to take this anymore.
0: Yeah.
1: And and so that it's it's eating away at the fabric of relationship. And there's that wonderful research. I think it's by Gottman, uh, where they talk about. It. And I've seen various numbers, so the num- I don't think the numbers are secure. But it's something like in a in an intimate relationship, we need five to seven positive interactions for every one negative. Wow in order, and yeah, it's I, at usually work, the flip side, you know, it's usually the flip side at work. It's less at work. It's like, but at work, even at work, it's like three to one is some of the research that I've seen. So, you know, it's the care and feeding of a relationship and saying, yeah, you do have room sometimes just to be a jerk, but you know, it's like one out of five at the most.
0: <laughs> yeah. But it's also starting maybe with ourselves. Right. So it's not just saying, yeah, they cert- they don't give me seven out of one. Like, let me tell them how to treat me, you know, but, but if we can nurture it the opposite way, then go, Hey, I've been, I've picked on him this many times, you know, what can I do to redress the balance and see what comes back?
1: Yeah. And and how do we, you know, care and feed our most precious relationships, you know, that for me that's 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 become more the question is not like, oh well, they love me. I mean I this seems really obvious and I think it's a it's also a you know any conscious person feels this way. you know I, I don't have the right to just let loose because they love me and I'm safe like because they love me, I need to I need to you know bring my best authentic self here
0: and invest in the relationship.
1: yeah, just like I would a you know a prize flower in my garden. You know, it's yeah. important and it needs to be watered and cared for. And that doesn't mean that I, you know, tiptoe around and I'm, you know, not myself. But, man, I think that could, you know, the not taking each other
0: for granted. Re- really yeah, revolutionize a uh, relationship. Um, what, what sort of habits and routines do you have in your life now to allow you to sort of perform to, to your best potential, whether that's through, through parenting, through work, whatever it might be?
1: You know, I think this is a thing that we as women are more socialized to be better at. But you know, it's this—it's my network of support. Nobody gets up the—the the, one of my favorite analogies is that consciousness is like a mountain. Um, and it works in many levels. Like you get higher, and you can kind of see what you were doing that you couldn't see when you were down in the middle of the fog. Um, But, you know, I had a, I had a good friend who was a mountain climber at one point, and he talked about going on this climb and he was with three guys and one of them got mad. And one of them was like, well, I'm not going to climb with you. And he went off and climbed by himself. And the two that climbed together, you know, got to the top successfully and quickly. And the one that went off by himself, you know, he didn't die or anything, but he didn't make the He didn't make that climb. He didn't make it to the top. And my business partner, Ursula um we talk a lot about being roped in together on the mountain and I think when I, you know, I'm not feeling resilient or I'm feeling, I call it when I've fallen down a crevasse. <laughs> That's a stark <laughs> image. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, sometimes it feels that way like, Oh my God, nothing's going to work. Why are we doing this? Why are we even trying? And I'm down this crevasse, you know, it's the, you know, basically sending out the little flare and she'll either come, you know, she'll either come down with me or, you know, throw me a rope or, you know, like that. And our, our rule, which is we're pretty well of for about 16, 17 years we've been partners is nobody, you know, only one person really gets to be in distress at a time <laughs> and usually it works it um, yeah, yeah exactly that, you know, there's lots of other things that I do that are just sort of realistic, I, you know I consider my being my instrument and so taking care of my being is not optional um, things like you know, the, it's, you know things like um, taking, you know, the, the time to check in with myself, whether it's meditation or a peaceful walk or, you know, massage shit like that. it sounds like, you know, so obvious, but, um, I had a shift in perspective given what I do and that I do work as an individual coach and I do a lot of work as a trainer and facilitator. I have got to take care of my being. Like somebody would take care of a precious violin, you know, it's not optional. Um, so, I think that helps as well.
0: Would, would you say that you've learned that the hard way through sort of burnout or yeah. things yeah. like that? Yeah. Giving to like, if, a, if you have a theme of maybe boundaries, uh, I, I, and, I, and I relate, uh, it can sort of show up in going, let me give, 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 because I get some self-worth from, from the giving and putting out until we're so depleted uh, that we've got to have a couple crashes before we speak in the way that you're speaking, which is yeah. I've got to do this. It's an investment. I know the purpose. If I don't do it, I know the pitfall
1: exactly and this this piece about i was thinking about i just got a you know i just got an rfp for some business that i would have loved to do but it would have crunched my february more than i wanted to it would have added you know more travel in there that i really didn't want and you know it's like you know what i think another piece of it is telling myself it is a prosperous universe i do not have to i will be okay i will have enough um, I don't have to sacrifice myself. And the more that I have stood in that trust, I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but the more I that has been become true. Um, so it's a question of, you know, this is where my whole journey started with my with my business partner, it started with the words love and fear, which are not you know, any great insight that we had, basically every spiritual teacher from the word go has said that's our choice, sure. love or fear. Sure. And, you know, for me, that's the bottom line about um, adversity and resiliency is what will I choose? Will I choose love or will I choose fear? And there's a lot of layers in both. Um but that's been what I have sort of where I've pointed my boat, where I've pointed my compass for particularly for particularly the last you know seventeen years, eighteen years is is pointing it toward what is what in this situation, what would it mean to choose love? For myself, for the others, for the
0: enterprise, what does that mean? such a such a profound um choice we're, we're coming to the end of this oh, conversation okay. which is which is incredible so we've covered so much and we do one day, So you're across the pond this is the thing with uh, globalization um finally what advice is there a, a single piece of advice that you might give to somebody sort of as your younger self was that 17 year old who's hitting some kind of rock bottom has an absolute crisis of identity uh, what advice would you give to them
1: Oh God, that makes me want to cry, and and um, it's—I I don't even know if this is good advice, but here's what's coming to me, like completely from welling up—is find someone who loves you, and I don't mean romantic love. I don't mean lose yourself in that. I mean there are people who will love you. There are mentors. There are programs. There are groups. There are positive places. There are, you know, I don't know whether it's you know the, the YWCA. There are there are people who will love you. And you know, and you might find a group that should be loving and isn't, then don't stay. But find the the peers and adults who are going to come from love and not some you know twisted competition thing and find people who love you really love you not how you look or or what you've done but you at your core um because I don't think we do any of this alone and that's the that's what that's what worked for me and that's what's worked for me for you know ever since I was 17 is to continue to go to those places where people love me
0: and and connection really is the opposite of shame, right? Uh, some yeah. of the Brené Brown's work is just when yeah. when we connect, we get to you know we don't isolate and we can get over some of the the shame factor.
1: Yeah, and you you know, and you realize whatever you think is so terrible that you're going through, whether it's losing your hair like me, or not being as skinny as the other girls, or being too skinny, or whatever it is, you know, in in this beautiful way, and I say this in the most loving way, you're not so special. Even the most beautiful girl or boy or whatever you know has their own secret um in there and that's part of what makes us human absolutely
0: and embrace the the opportunities to develop your resilience because that's what every challenge essentially is yeah um, anne, where can people find you online if they want to sort of connect with you?
1: Yeah, if you want to connect with me, my website is um, beaboveleadership.com, and we do training for coaches all over the world, and my email um, itself is anne at beaboveleadership.com, and I'm also on Facebook, and Bets or LinkedIn, and I love to connect, so
0: thank you patrick it's Lovely. been a delight. it has been it's been so good thank you for showing your authentic true self and giving our, <laughs> the listeners so much wisdom and me i had to, i always learn something from these conversations so i appreciate it so much thank you you are so welcome thank you so much for listening if something helped you today please do share this episode with a friend and let them know that they are not alone i know that for me isolation kept me stuck much longer than i needed to be So let's practice courage and talk to someone about what's going on as that's the first step to making life amazing. Check out my website petravelsvore.com for your free Kickstarter plan which will teach you to turn your biggest weaknesses into your greatest strengths. Join the community of people who are changing the way they view life's challenges and living life to the full. Until next time, goodbye.